As our kids make their way out, well, they're, they're mostly gone now, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John once again. John in chapter 19, starting in verse 17. John 19, starting in verse 17. going to read it. This is a familiar passage, one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. I'm going to read it, but before I do, usually I read it and then I pray. Uh, Today I'm going to pray first and then read it. Holy Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together as a church family and as members of your family in your house. Thank you that you allow us to call you our Father. You are our God and our Father. Thank you that you have invited us into your family, that we have been adopted by grace through faith. Thank you that you have received us. Thank you for your unconditional love for us. Thank you that you that you are for us, that you celebrate and rejoice over victories, over blessings, and that you are a God who who grieves, uh, that who uh, cares about what happens to us. Uh, You're not an unfeeling or distant God, but you're a God who is near. And we thank you for that. I pray now as we read these words of this true story that happened so many years ago, but that it's still relevant to our lives today. I pray that you'd help us to hear it fresh, to hear it new, and to I pray that you would press upon our hearts and minds the relevance of this historical event to our own lives. In Christ's name, amen. John 19, and I'm starting. Uh, at just, I'm, I'm going to start right at the end of verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests and the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. And this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. 
This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. It's verse 18. It's verse 18 where the real important action, I mean the whole, the whole passage is obviously important, it's scripture, but verse 18 where that momentous event takes place. It says it plainly and succinctly, if you're not paying attention, you could almost even miss it. The most important, one of the most important moments in the history of the world, summed up by John in four words in English, there they crucified him. This morning, as we look upon this familiar and painful scene, I want us to start, I want us to take it all in. It's a familiar scene. We've been here before. We've looked on this scene before. But I want us to see it again with new eyes. And so the way I want us to do it is by zooming in and focusing very, very narrowly on the centerpiece of the story, Jesus and his crucifixion. But then I want us to slowly back out and pan out and see the whole picture. See the whole scene because there's an awful lot going on here besides just the crucifixion of Jesus, which I've already said is the the main event, the most important thing. But there's other things happening here too that we would do well to pay attention to. So we'll start by focusing on Christ and his cross and then pan out. Verse 17 tells us that he carried his own cross to his own sacrifice when I read that, I, in my mind, I go Old Testament and I think Isaac. Remember this scene? Isaac, young Isaac, walking with his father Abraham. Isaac carrying his own wood to his own sacrificial offering. He was the sacrifice and he was carrying his own wood to it. That's what, I, uh, what, that's what came to my mind when I read this story again this week. Jesus carrying his own wood, his own cross, to his own sacrifice. But in the case of Isaac, as you know, God intervened. Isaac wasn't sacrificed. God intervened and sent a ram as a substitute to take the place of Isaac. In the case of Jesus, he is the substitute for our sins. He is the lamb. And therefore, there is no one that's going to take his place. There is no animal that's going to be sent to be his substitute because he is our substitute. Now, none of the gospel writers spend much time describing the actual crucifixion or the physical pain that Christ endured. In fact, it's surprisingly little amount of words are spent describing the actual crucifixion, which is surprising because it's such an important event in the history of the world and, and in our own faith. Now, I think partly... There's not much description of the crucifixion because the first century readers would have been familiar with the tortures of crucifixion. They didn't need it described for them. They knew about it. And also, I think, the reason that the gospel writers don't dwell on the pain is because to focus on the physical pain that Christ endured is to miss the main point which is that Jesus endured the righteous wrath of God the Father poured out on his head in order to atone for the sins of God's people. That's definitely the main point, and it's the thing that we should focus on, but, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that the cross was a place where Christ endured real, extreme, physical pain. Jesus, as he walked to 
his crucifixion was probably, if it was a typical crucifixion procession, he was probably in the center of a group of four uh, Roman soldiers that would have kind of surrounded him in a, in a box-like um, shape. And uh, he was, we're told, he was carrying the crossbeam of his cross on his shoulders. Now, typically, I did a bit of research about crucifixion this week. Typically, that crossbeam would have, would have weighed about 100 pounds that he was carrying on his shoulders after having been uh, mercilessly beaten. When they arrived at the place of execution, typically the procession to a crucifixion, they purposefully took the longest route possible to get there, not only to cause the one being crucified to suffer a bit more, but also because they wanted to attract a crowd. It was a public execution by design. Is meant to publicly shame the person being executed. And so they would take a circuitous route through town and they would be attempting to attract a crowd to follow, to come and witness the execution. When they arrived at the place of execution, they would have laid him down and laid the crossbeam across uh, the patibulum. That's the vertical piece of lumber that makes the cross. I learned that word this week, patibulum. That's the vertical piece. They would have laid him across that. They would have driven spikes through his hands or wrists, and then they would have hoisted the cross up and into place. His legs would have been dangling initially as the, when they hoisted him up, and then they would have nailed his feet or his ankles to the patibulum, and they would have done so very strategically, leaving a little flex in the knees uh, so that he could straighten his legs, extend his legs, in order to push himself up, in order to draw a breath, to release the lungs a little bit so he could take a breath uh, before sinking back down. Because as you probably know, crucifixion, the death that happens at crucifixion is through suffocation. So by, by allowing a little, a little flex in the legs so that he could straighten and catch a breath, it actually uh, ex would have extended his life so he could breathe longer and live longer, but that was a calculated thing. They extended the person who's being crucified, extended their life so that they could extend the pain and suffering. Remember that his back has already been flayed open. And the cross, you can picture it, was, of course, rough and unfinished lumber. So he's, he's pushing up with his legs to, to get a breath. And as he does, he's scraping his ripped open back against the cross in order to draw that breath. And he's further aggravating the lacerations on his back. Uh, the medical descriptions of the pain and agony caused by that rhythmic pushing up, drawing a breath, sliding down, uh, they are extremely gruesome, and I'm not going to describe or read in any detail any of that here now. You can on your own time if you want, except to say that the physical pain that Christ endured was just absolutely inhuman and, and horrific. But still, the physical pain that Christ endured, that was just a shadow of the misery that he experienced when God's wrath for our sins was poured upon him. And when that resulted, that wrath being poured on him resulted in separation from his heavenly Father. Towards the end, do you remember towards the end of this whole ordeal when Christ called out, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? His willingness to endure such physical and spiritual suffering on our behalf is a, is a tangible picture of his deep and abiding love for us. C.S. Lewis has, has wrote and referred to the cross of Christ as a diagram of love. I love that expression. I love that phrase. Uh, a diagram of love. Look at Christ on the cross and you see a diagram. God has, God has drawn a diagram of love. And as we look at this diagram of love, okay, we've seen the cross now. We've seen the crucifixion. We understand the physical pain a little bit. We understand the, the depth of the spiritual pain a little bit. We certainly don't grasp it fully, but we're starting to get it. Now I want us to pull the camera back just a little, okay? I want us to see the scene, taking a little bit more of the scene. And the first thing we're going to look at is two more crosses on either side. So see all three now, okay? I want to tell you a story about these three crosses that Pastor Donald Barnhouse used to tell. Um, Donald Barnhouse was a, was a well-known preacher in the, in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, his sermons were on the radio, had a popular radio show. And uh, he was in his study at his, at his church one day, and... Um, the captain of the largest passenger vessel in the world showed up at his church, knocked on his door, and uh, the captain said to Donald Barnhouse, he said, I, I heard you preach on the radio, and when I heard you preach on the radio, I decided that I had to come and speak with you in person. And Donald Barnhouse was not a man for small talk. He was not a man to beat around the bush. He, he didn't know this guy, and he just immediately, his first question was, are you a Christian? And the man said, well, actually, that's what I'm here to talk to you about. So Barnhouse gets up. He has a chalkboard in his, in his study, takes a piece of chalk, and, and draws three crosses on the chalkboard. Under the first cross and the third cross, but not the middle one, underneath those crosses, he writes the word in. And then on the, under the middle one, he writes not in. And then he says to his visitor, he says, the men who died with Jesus had sin in them, but Jesus did not. Do you understand this? And the captain said, yeah, I understand. Okay, then, then he takes the chalk and over the first and third crosses, on top of them, he writes, on. And he says to the captain, do you understand? And the captain says, no. No, I don't. And Barnhouse says, well, when you have sin in you, then sooner or later, you're, it's going to come out. You're going to commit a sin because what's inside of you eventually comes out of you. But once it comes out of you, once you actually engage in sin, then you're guilty and the penalty for sin rests on you. So when you have sin in you, now you have a penalty on you. So if you tell a lie in a court of law, that deception came from inside of you. But once it's out, you have just committed perjury. And now the penalty for that lie is on you. And you're going to have to pay for your sin. Do you understand? The captain said, yeah, I do. I get it. And I know that I have sinned. And I know that I am responsible for that sin. And believe me, I feel the weight of my sin on me. I get it. 
Barnhouse said, okay, now watch, watch. He wrote the word on, capital letters, bigger than the other words, capital letters, over the cross, in the middle, on. And then he crossed out the word on that was over the first cross, and he drew an arrow from that cross to the middle cross, to the cross of Christ. And he said, because there was no sin in him, in Christ, he was able to take our sins on himself. So that all of those who have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins have the penalty of their own sins transferred from themselves onto Jesus and they are completely forgiven. And they are washed completely clean. And they are restored into a renewed relationship with God their Father. And they receive the gift of eternal life. Now, how about you? Which cross represents your life. Are you the first one where the sins have been transferred from you to Christ? Or are you the third one where that person has to bear the penalty for their own sin? Now this guy was a large, distinguished, English, British man. He was the type I'm speculating here a little bit, but he, I, I, I'm guessing that he probably wasn't generally given to public displays of emotion. Uh, a captain of a large sea vessel, a, a, a British citizen, I just I imagine. And he didn't typically wear his heart on his sleeve, but he, he broke down. And with tears in his eyes, he said, by the grace of God, I am that first man. And I now know that my sins have been paid for and forgiven. Now let me ask you, how about you? Do you know that? Do you know that with certainty? Do you feel that assurance? Do you know that the sins that were on you, the penalty for sin that was on you, has been transferred onto Jesus as he died on the cross to pay for your sins? That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. The Son of God securing our salvation by atoning for our sins through his sacrifice. Now listen, that gift is free. And anyone can receive it by grace through faith. But once we receive that gift, there is, in fact, a cost. There is a cost. The life of discipleship involves a daily dying to oneself and picking up one's own cross. Those are Jesus' words. Picking up our own cross and following him. In other words, listen, there's no, there's no admission charge to get into the family of God. It's free, completely free, available to everyone, no charge. But once you're in the family, there's a lot of work to do for members of God's household. It's joyful work, it's blessed work, it's good work, but make no mistake, it requires sacrifice. There is a cost to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So lift your gaze up now a little bit from the man on the cross, the man with the crown of thorns on his head. Lift your gaze up a little bit and you'll see a reminder of what discipleship is all about. Okay, we're pulling back a little bit, getting a bigger picture of the scene. There's a sign up there above him. Do you see it? It says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, the chief priests and the rabbis don't like that sign because they don't acknowledge the fact that Jesus is king. 
Pilate himself doesn't seem to care whether or not Jesus is king of the Jews, but the sign had been written and posted, and he wasn't going to change it. Little did Pilate or the Jewish leaders know just how accurate that sign was. Jesus is, in fact, king of the Jews. Jesus is, in fact, king of the Gentiles. Jesus is, in fact, king of the whole universe. And as such, for all those who would be his disciples, he demands allegiance. He demands allegiance. Discipleship to Jesus is the most blessed way to live on this earth, but make no mistake, there is a cost to discipleship. I don't, as far as I know in, in, in my reading, I don't, I've, I've never read anyone who, who wrote about the cost of discipleship more powerfully than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, outside of the Bible, of course. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these, wrote these famous words about cheap grace and costly grace. I bet you've heard them. Words that ring true. And words that are all the more powerful knowing that Bonhoeffer himself paid with his life for his convictions. This is what he writes. The Cost of Discipleship is the book. And this is what he writes. Cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the pearl of great price for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person their whole life. And it is grace because it gives that person the only true life that they could ever have. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what, cost, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but he delivered him up for us. That is the cost. You see, King Jesus died for our sins and that gift is free. It is. But if we want to receive that gift of grace, we need to be willing to acknowledge his kingship. And we need to submit to his authority and we need to obey all of his commands. That's all part of the package. Just a few days ago, in God's sovereignty and in his timing, I had been thinking about these things all week. And then I, I think it was, if I remember right, it was Thursday evening. A friend called. I had a phone conversation with a friend of mine who does not attend this church. And uh, I haven't spoken to him in, in over a year. But he called me. Specifically, he called me because he was thinking about 
taking a course of action that he knew deep in his heart was sinful. He knew deep in in his heart that the course of action he was considering taking was against the plain teaching of the Word of God. What the sin was he was considering engaging in is not important for you to know. But what, what I want you to know is that he was trying to convince himself that it wouldn't be a big deal. That sin really is not a big deal. Christ paid for our sins. It's not a big deal. He was trying to convince himself that it would be okay if he committed this sin. And he called me, my friend, in the hopes that I, as his friend, would be sympathetic to his situation and would affirm him in this decision. That's what he was looking for. But precisely because I'm in friend, his friend, and because I actually care about him and want what's best for him, I could not affirm the decision that he was making. And so I said, I, I think you know what the Bible has to say on this issue, because it's not confusing. It's not difficult to understand what God thinks about this. And if you pursue this course of action right now in your life, you will be purposefully and willfully stepping off the path of obedience to God and therefore off the path of blessing. You will be stepping away from discipleship if you pursue this course of action, is what I told him. And he said, yeah, I know. But Jason, everyone does that. I see it all the time. He's he's speaking to me now. He says, I see it all the time where Christians make decisions that go against what the Bible teaches. I see it all the time. Why don't I get to do it? How come I don't get to make exceptions to my obedience to the Bible just like every other Christian does? And at this point in the conversation, I began to get genuinely worried about the state of my friend's soul. Was he really so committed to following this course of action? Was he really so committed to pursuing this sin that he was willing to walk away from the plain teaching of the Bible? Did he really think, did he actually think that the path of blessing was going to be disobedience to God? That that was the way that he would really experience blessing is if he did this thing instead of obeying God. And so I said to him, and to be honest with you, I said it a little stronger than I intended. I overspeak sometimes. I know I do. But I said this to him. And I said it in love. I said, listen, no Christian gets to be the exception. Don't kid yourself. You understand me? No Christian gets to choose to be the exception. No disciple gets to pick and choose which commands they like to obey and which ones they don't really feel like obeying, so they're going to choose to disregard. If you are a disciple, that means you acknowledge that Jesus is your king. Not just your friend. I know what a friend we have in Jesus. I know that, and it's good. He has called us friends. He said that towards the end of John. But he's also our king. And if you're a disciple, that means you have acknowledged him as king. And if you have acknowledged him as king, that means you will obey him and follow him no matter the cost. He didn't hide that in the fine print. He put that right in big block letters. 
If anyone wants to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Right? He, he didn't sneak that in at the end. He put it on a billboard right up front. That was part of the deal. And what I said to my friend, I said, look, if he's not your king, and if you're not his disciple, then do whatever you want. I don't care. You're a grown man. You can do whatever you want. But listen, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, then have the decency, have the honesty to play by the rules and take that crown off your head and submit yourself to the authority of King Jesus. Well, the conversation was over by that point. And I don't know what path he's going to choose to walk down, but I do know this. I do know that if he chooses the path of disobedience, hear what I'm about to say, because it's probably not what you think. If he chooses the path of disobedience, there's grace for that. There's forgiveness for that. It's not my place to judge him, and I don't mean to stand up here and judge him. All Christians sin, and God's grace and mercy and love is greater than our sin. But I also know that if he chooses to walk down that path, he will be damaging his own soul, he will be hurting his own soul, and he will be willfully choosing to step off the path of blessing if he chooses to disregard the commandments of the king. It is our privilege and it is our honor and it is our duty to submit to the authority of King Jesus. All right, that's the sign. King of the Jews, King of the Gentiles, King of the world, King Jesus. Now pull the lens back a little bit more. What do you see? When you pull back a little more, you see a handful of Roman soldiers, right? Off to the side a little bit. These Roman soldiers do not acknowledge that Jesus is king. They are taking the opportunity of his death to improve their wardrobes. They are gambling for his clothes. Every first century Jew wore five pieces of clothing. They wore sandals on their feet, a turban on their head, they wore a belt, they wore an inner tunic and an outer robe. We're told that this group of soldiers divided up this stuff. One article for each soldier, four soldiers, that leaves them with one leftover. One article. It's a seamless tunic, and they decide to cast lots for it. Unbeknownst to these men, as they're gambling for a man's clothing while that man is within eyesight and is currently in the act of dying, while they're doing that, they are actually fulfilling a prophecy that was given thousands of years ago in Psalm 22, which said, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John cites that passage, and it's his way of calling our attention to the fact that God is still in control of this scene. As horrific as this scene is, it is proceeding exactly according to plan. Jesus really and truly is king of the universe. And all humans exist to do his bidding, whether they acknowledge it or not. And it's important to see God's fingerprints all over this scene and to be reminded that God is always in control, even during the darkest moment in human history. And that truth can bring you and I a lot of comfort when we walk through our own valleys and dark moments. Next time things look dark or depressing or out of control in your own life, 
Next time you find yourself asking God why or how long, look for the fingerprints of God. Remember these soldiers doing an evil act, but at the same time unwittingly fulfilling God's purposes. And believe that nothing can happen that will ultimately thwart God's sovereign and good purposes in your own life as well. All right, we're going to pull the lens back just one more time and take in the full scene. We've seen the cross of Jesus Christ. We've seen the physical, thought about the physical and the spiritual suffering of Christ. We pulled back and we've seen the two criminals on either side. We have beheld the beauty of Christ's vicarious atonement for our sins. We've, saw, we've seen the sign designated designating Jesus as king. We've seen the cold-hearted soldiers gambling for the dying Christ tunic. And now we look at the full scene and we see four broken-hearted women and the beloved apostle John. And even to his dying breath, Jesus is acting like the king that he is. And he's issuing commands from the cross which he expects his disciples to follow. Can anyone imagine the pain of these four women as they look in horror at Jesus as he is crucified and as his life is expiring right before their very eyes? They're watching it happen. When Jesus was an infant, do you remember this scene? Mary took baby Jesus in her arms, brought him to the temple. In the temple, there's an old and righteous prophetic man named Simeon who speaks blessing and prophecy over Jesus. And in the context of those words, he has a word for Mary. Do you remember what he said to Mary? A sword will pierce through your own soul. Surely this is the moment that Simeon was referring to as she watches the execution of her own son. And yet, into that pain, Jesus speaks words of care and comfort and compassion, as well as issuing instructions about how he expects him to behave when he's gone. Woman, from now on, you consider John as your son. And John, from here on out, you treat my mom as if she's your mom. That's an expression of love and compassion, but that's also a command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus' commands are always rooted in love and compassion. He always commands us to do what's best for us. He knows what's best for us. He loves us. But sometimes his commands are hard to obey and they require a sacrifice. But he is king. King of the Jews, king of the Gentiles, king of the universe. And that is not up for question. The only question is whether or not we will receive his gift of grace, whether or not we will acknowledge his kingship, and whether or not we will follow in obedience, or if we will deny his kingship and make a mockery of his sacrifice like the soldiers did. This is what Charles Spurgeon had to say on this topic, and I close with these words. He says it way better than I ever could. This is from a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this topic. He said, Jesus claims to be king, so stand at the foot of the cross. I pray, admit his claim. If you would have Jesus to be your savior, then you must have him to be your king. 
and you must submit to his government, for he claims the right to rule over all who acknowledge him as Savior. And more than that, he claims to rule all of mankind, for all power is given unto him in heaven and on earth. And we are bidden to proclaim his kingdom throughout the whole world and to say to all, Jesus of Nazareth is your king. Bow before him and worship. I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, it's, there's so much happening in these few short verses. So much at stake. So much in the balance. So much being said and demonstrated and articulated and communicated through this moment in time that we're reading about. You didn't have to be there on that cross, but you chose to willingly. You didn't have to endure the pain and suffering. You didn't have to endure the mocking and shame. You didn't have to endure the separation of yourself from your father, but you did. You did all of that. You endured all of that for us and for our sake and for the forgiveness of our sins so that we might be invited and welcomed into your family, members of your household, salvation secured by grace and received through faith. We thank you for that. We thank you for the reminder of that today. There is nothing more important than that. And we come before you as your friends and as your family members, but also as your subjects. Willingly and gladly, we acknowledge that you are our king and we submit to your rule and reign, to your authority. You are the command giver, the law issuer, and we are your servants. We receive your commands and it is our joy and privilege and duty to obey, to pick up our crosses, and to follow. It's always joyful, and it's always a blessing, but sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's hard. And so, Lord, I pray specifically for us this morning for the times when it feels hard, when your commandments feel like a burden. We know they're issued in love and compassion, and we know that they are what's right and good, but sometimes they feel heavy, and they feel hard. And in those moments, I pray that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us the courage to follow, to pick up our cross daily, to deny ourselves, and to follow where you lead, believing, even if we don't see it, believing that that is the path of blessing and joy. And Lord Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We pray this in your name. Amen.